Let's pray. Let's invite the Holy Spirit to come and encounter us with his word. He loves to do that. Father, we thank you for this time. I thank you for this group of people here. The heart of Jesus that I see in this community is so beautiful. It makes me, I don't know whether to cry or laugh or shout. It's, it's beautiful to see your heart in people. Lord, we thank you for that. And we pray that this morning that your word would go forth swiftly, that you would actually take your word, plant it in the garden of our hearts, and that it would grow and produce much fruit for the glory of your name and for the destiny of your purpose in every person here. I pray that you would plant seeds in every heart in this place, that you would not let anyone escape the reach of your powerful grace in the gospel in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. So, this might be a little bit different this morning. I thank God for the testimony and seeing what the Lord has done. The gospel is powerful. There's only two things in Scripture that Paul said were the power of God. One is the Lord Jesus Christ himself and the other is the gospel. The gospel is powerful to transform. It's powerful to change lives on every level from beginning to end. How many can testify that the gospel has changed your life, has radically changed the core of who you were? Okay, here's what I want to get. That never ends. We view the gospel as being the door to come to a relationship with God. But the reality is in the Scripture that the gospel is not just supposed to be the door we come through and now we have a relationship with Jesus. It's supposed to be our new address. It's supposed to be the air that we breathe. It's supposed to be where we put down our roots and we take our nourishment from the gospel every day. It never ends. Jesus began to apprehend me 43 years ago. That's why I'm one of the gray hairs. We're trying to get some t-shirts around here. Uh, about, about the gray hairs for Christ. And then we want to get this uh, picture of us on horses leading the charge. Come on. <clears throat> but it never ends. So let me just say from personal experience, um, and this is, I'm going to be vulnerable with you. Is that okay? Is that awkward or is it okay if I be vulnerable with you? The last few months of my life have been exceedingly difficult in my spiritual walk with the Lord. It's been very dark. Um, it's been, I've been dealing with pushing through spiritual depression, honestly, with you. There was, um, I thank God for my wife. She's helped talk me down off the ledges. How many can thank God for your wife that she's talked you down off the ledges? So I've been pushing through this. Very, it's unusual for me because some people have a temperament and a personality that tends toward depression, but I really don't. I've never really struggled much with that. I don't know. I know people that have. I know people that are really prominent that I greatly respect that have. Charles Spurgeon for one, John Piper for one. I've heard John Piper say that uh, there was many times where he sat down outside of his house on the front walk so depressed that he couldn't even remember the names of his own children. So I'm not been that bad. I'm coming out. So what I want to share is 
The gospel is the answer for all of us at every stage in our life. It never changes the truth of the gospel. It's not just the door we go through. It is the air that we breathe. It is the living power of God that works in us, not just to save us, but to bring us through the whole process of salvation, which in Scripture is past, present, and future. It's powerful. So I've been walking through that. You go, well, why didn't you just rebuke it and cast it out? I did. (laughs) Why didn't you just quote scriptures to it? I did. Why didn't you just pray and fast? I did. Why didn't you just worship? I did. I'm coming out. But I I I want to just share with you this morning what has helped me and what has helped me the most. To, to come out of this, because maybe you're going to experience that at some point in your life, and you're going to do everything that you know to do, but the darkness still hangs, and you don't know what to do with it. I know there's physical issues sometimes that can cause depression, whatever. I mean, I just went through open-heart surgery a few months ago, so I, I get all of that. Um, I know that there's temperament issues. Uh, I, I know there's a lot of things. There's, there's disappointing circumstances, difficult circumstances. I've experienced all of those things. Um, I get that. And, you know, for me, I have this extra added thing of I'm just hangry. You know, I look, you know what hangry is? I, I, I looked up that word. It's actually not slang anymore. It's actually an official word in the Oxford Dictionary of the American Language. Hangry. Here's what hangry is. To be bad-tempered or irrita- irritable because of hunger. So... And I'm not really referring to my new heart-healthy diet. Chickpeas are awesome. Um, Hummus is awesome. I'm lying now like a dog. (laughs) But I can tell you, I still want ribs and mac and cheese. And Briar's chocolate ice cream, all right? It, it hurts me. If you've ever fasted, you know what hangry is. About noontime or once, you know, you usually had your coffee and you're getting a headache about 9 in the morning. You're hangry starting right then. I've seen it on a lot of you guys. You're... But I'm not talking about physically hangry, but for me, I'm there's a spiritual thing in me where I stay hangry. There's something inside of me where I see things in Scripture and I look at my own life and I go, where is that, dude? Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all that you could ever ask or even think according to the power that works in you. And there's many times where I've looked in the mirror and go, the power that works in me doesn't seem like it's strong enough to blow out a candle right now. That, that frustrates me. It makes me spiritually hangry. I look at the larger body of Christ, and I wonder sometimes. I, I, this is not going to be Debbie Downer message, okay? So we're, we're going to get to the gospel here and to the scripture. I look at the larger body of Christ, just something that's been hanging over me, just the way in charismatic circles especially that we're, it seems like they're just seeking after some kind of a new experience or whatever. I was reading... Um, And just pondering recently in John chapter 17, 
So powerful, verse 22. This is the only place in Scripture that I know of where Jesus said that he gave us his glory. He's praying and he says, Father, the glory that you have given to me. What glory is that that the Father has given to his only unique begotten son, Jesus, the unique son in all the universe? The glory that you've given me, I have given to them And I'm thinking, why? Here's the thing. He tells us why in that verse. So that, anybody know? So that they may be one, Father, even as you and I are one. I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity. Here's the, here's the staggering thing about that verse and that passage. Jesus said he gave us the glory that is uniquely his as the Son of God. He deposited it upon us as his body. That's, that's jaw-dropping enough in itself. But what is it for? What is that glory for? Oh, brother, it's for gold dust. It's for clouds. It's for special things in the meeting. It's for exciting things like that. He said, no. It's not. It's to do a supernatural miracle in my people so that they will love each other the way that the Father and I love each other. And I want to tell you, when that atmosphere actually comes to pass and coalesces, there's power that's released. You don't have to chase the gold dust. Jesus comes in the midst of that, like Psalm 133 says. He dwells in the midst of it. And I'm like... I want to preach a message, Adam, called the misappropriation of glory. He gave us the glory for a certain reason. We go, no, I don't think we want to use it for that. We want to use it for this. That makes me hangry. What are we doing? Sorry, you guys have to get used to me. I'm a yeller if you don't know. But it does help keep my throat clear. So I see myself, I see the body of Christ, I see the things that are in this word, and I can't help but read it and go, where is that? Where is that in me? Where is that in the larger body? Guys, again, this is not throwing darts at anybody. It's just longing inside of me. I believe when Jesus was praying in John 17, he was pouring out the longing of his heart to the Father. Jesus said, I'm going to take the unique glory that you gave me, and I'm going to give it to them, and here's the reason why. And my question is, Is that what we're using it for? Is that why we want it? Is that why we're praying and fasting for the glory to come? Or are we misappropriating it on something that we want to have some exciting something happen? Just a question. So for me, in the midst of my situation, I'm coming out. I'm I'm, I'm coming out now. Thank God my wife has helped me. Uh, She's... She's such a treasure. And if you have a godly wife that encourages you and, and her answer to everything, which I love, is maybe I'm this and that and this. Come on, let's pray and worship. Come on, let's pray and worship. Come on, let's seek God and pray and worship. He's where the answer is. Come on, women. Thank God for you who do that. So, my wife, the biggest encouragement 
And I've also got some dead friends who have been big encouragements to me. Um, Martin Lloyd-Jones has, has been a faithful friend to me. I don't know how long he's been dead. He doesn't care because he's alive with Jesus. Um, he has a book called Spiritual Depression, It's Causes and Cure. So you go, you, you were reading that? Yes, I was. Here's, here's the wounds of a faithful friend. Can I just read this to you? This, is, this has helped me. The ultimate cause of all spiritual depression is unbelief. Thank you. The wounds of a faithful friend. Listen, this is insightful. Have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? The essence of the matter is to understand that this self of ours, this other man within us, has got to be handled. Do not listen to him. Speak to him. Challenge him. Exhort him. Encourage him. Remind him of what you know instead of listening passively to him and allowing him to drag you down and depress you. For that is what he will always do if you allow him to be in control. The devil takes hold of self and uses it in order to depress us. How many have ever found that to be the case? You wake up in the morning, you feel something, and then the voice starts talking. Dude, it's never going to get better. See, I know not to yield to that. I know to fight. The worst thing you can possibly do is to wallow in it and lay in it. You can't do that. But what we've got to do is go to the answer, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel is the power of God. Hallelujah. I just confess before you, after walking with Jesus for 43 years, that I still forget the gospel sometimes. I don't know how. I teach it. I preach it. I read constantly. I meditate on it. And I still stink and forget. Maybe you do too. So if you'll allow me this morning, I really would like to preach to myself. And I, and I pray that maybe you can get some benefit from it. As well, Ephesians chapter 1 is where my text is going to start. Ephesians 1. Ephesians 1, 3 through 9. And then chapter 2, verses 4 through 7. This is familiar passage. But, but here's what I know. Familiar passages don't set you free unless you take them in and believe them and appropriate them in your life as well. You can get immune and numb to hearing the Scripture I think sometimes in charismatic circles, especially in, in revival circles, we have an addiction to conviction. Preach the word that convicts me, I'll come up to the altar and then I'm done. And then Jesus said, well, wait, we, we're, we're supposed to change that core issue there to where you don't keep coming for the same thing every time that conviction is put out there. Just saying. Verse 3 of chapter 1 of Ephesians. This is the gospel. This is the gospel from the inside of, of the cross, where we all are who are born again. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before Him in love. He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, 
according to, notice the phrase, it's repeated again, according to the kind intention of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace, which He freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the, say it, riches of His grace, which He lavished on us in all wisdom and insight. Can I just stop for a minute to underline the word lavished? Can, can I suggest to you that you don't lavish with a teaspoon? You don't lavish with a teaspoon. You lavish with a bucket. Grace in Christ Jesus. He lavished it upon us. It's the riches of His grace. It's not a little teaspoonful to get you by through the day. It's for eternity. Verse 9, He made known to us the mystery of His will according to His kind intention which He purposed in Him. And then if you flip over to just the next page, chapter 2, I'm going to read verses 4 through 7. This is going to be the main text. By God, but God, I'm sorry, verse 4, but God. Read verses 1 through 3. That was our natural state. <laughs> Let me just read it. I can't skip past it. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. Who can say that was me? In which you formerly walked according to the course of the world. Who can say that was me? According to the prince of the power of the air and of the spirit that's now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them too we all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath even as the rest. Biggest words in the universe. But God. But God intervened. But God, being rich in mercy, because of His great love with which He loved us. You see, the, um, the wording that Paul uses to magnify the greatness of His mercy and of His love. Even when we were dead in our transgressions, He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the ages to come... <laughs> this is so amazing. He might show the surpassing riches of His grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. The gospel isn't just for when you get saved. The gospel isn't just for this life until we die and meet Him. God has so planned and so poured His grace and lavished His grace upon His people that through all the endless ages of eternity, He's going to still be demonstrating to us how rich and how magnificent His grace is. And in heaven, yes, in heaven, we're going to drop our jaw and go, this is so incredible. It's so much bigger than what we've grasped in our heart. John, 1 John 3, 1 says, Beloved, it does not yet appear what we're going to be, but we know this, that when he appears, that's verse 2. Verse 1 says, Behold how great a manner, what amazing manner of love the Father has loved us, that we should be called the children of God. What kind of love is this? That phrase is used in the Gospels for many times where the disciples were astonished. One time in particular, Jesus is on the boat with them, right? The storm comes up on the Sea of Galilee. They're terrified that they're going to die. Jesus is asleep in the bow of the boat, which is amazing to me. I don't know how that can happen. He was really, really tired. <clears throat> he's, he's asleep. The disciples come and wake him up. Lord, don't you care that we're going to die? 
he says, where's your faith? Seriously? Where's your faith? This is a pretty bad storm. If the fishermen are scared, they're going to drown. Jesus stands on the bow boat. Come on, tell me, what does he say? Peace, be still. And what do the disciples say? They're terrified. And they say to themselves, what kind of man is this? It's the same phrase that's used in 1 John 3. What kind of love is this? What kind of incredible love is this? What kind of love is this? So foreign, so unusual, so extravagant, so amazing throughout the endless ages of time. So there's two. I want to kind of define it this way. I know we, we talk about grace in this church and in every church that aspires for revival, we need to talk about grace all the time because the tendency in a church like that is to go into the full-out work syndrome instead of relying upon Jesus. I can tell you the truth. I can tell you from experience in the heart of the Father since the beginning. Two great things that the Father has done for us in Christ Jesus with His grace. Okay, I'm preaching to myself. Is that all right? You can listen. He has given us his face, and he has given us his hand. Here's what I mean by that. His face, Numbers chapter 20, uh, 6, verse 22 and 20 to 27, let me read it to you. You're familiar with this blessing where God tells Moses, have Aaron speak this blessing over my people. Here's the blessing. The Lord then spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons, saying, Thus you shall bless the sons of Israel. You shall say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance on you and give you peace. So they shall invoke my name on the sons of Israel, and then I will bless them. You see the word bless over and over there? You see it also in Ephesians chapter 1. I believe that the complete fulfillment of this blessing of the Lord and His face shining upon His people happens in Christ Jesus. The kind intention of His will, He planned it from before eternity. Can, Can I just tell you that the Lord, a long time ago, before you were even born, made up His mind how He felt about you. He made up His mind how He felt about you from before there was time, before your daddy had a little twinkle in his eye, the Lord already knew you. He knew he'd called you to himself and that you were coming to him through Christ Jesus. He already made up his mind what his heart was going to be towards you. One of blessing, one of lavish love and eternal welfare, looking for the kind intention of his heart to overflow and to bless your life every day and every night. That's the breath and the air that we breathe. Here's um, what R.K. Harrison, he's a good Hebrew scholar, says about this, the words in this passage. The face of God is another way of speaking about his personality. In human beings, a wide range of emotional responses is reflected by means of facial expressions. On this analogy, if the Lord's presence is radiating divine favor in the midst of his people... They can confidently expect him to pour out his covenant mercies upon them. 
The shining countenance of God is a positive presence for help and favor as a sign of the friendly and beneficent nearness of God, which is gracious in His assistance as He turns to help human beings. By lifting up the face, God is... Listen, this is good. By lifting up His face, God is looking directly at His people so that they may receive the benefit of His full attention. Shalom describes the state of fulfillment that results from God's nearness and presence. His eye is on you. You have his full attention. His face has turned in Christ Jesus. His face has turned and shined upon you. Really grasping. I know we talk about the love of God flippantly and glibly sometimes. And I know from experience in my own life and I know from experience in the church over many years that we don't get it just because we talk about it a few times. We get it when we actually get encountered by the Lord and by His love, and it rocks us to the core. That's how the gospel works. It's powerful. The embrace and the acceptance, the love of the Father, the deep, deep love of Jesus changes us from the inside out. This is how the gospel works. One of the most beautiful little pictures in in the gospels to me is, is the story of Zacchaeus in Luke chapter 19. You know the story. Zacchaeus was a what? Was a wee little man. He was also a very evil little man. Because he was a what? He was a tax collector. Okay, little background. Tax collector in Israel. The Roman government hired them because they knew all the people and all the stuff that they had so they would make sure they didn't miss getting taxes from anybody. So these guys basically sold their mama and their brother and all of their relatives to the Romans for money for themselves. So the Romans say, hey, look, you collect X amount of money, and whatever you get above that, that's your business. But if you need us to come in because somebody's not paying, we'll send the soldiers in there and rough them up and beat them up, and then they will pay you. You can imagine how hated the tax collectors were. In the Gospels, they're most often included in this kind of category, the sinners and tax collectors and prostitutes. They're all kind of bunched together. These guys were not well loved in their own country. They're viewed as, rightly viewed as traitors. So you got the wee little evil man there whose God was what? His God was greed and money, no doubt. He's wanting to see Jesus. If he's trying to get up in front of the crowd, usually if a short person comes up in front of you and stands and they're not blocking your view, you let them come and stand there, right? But with Zacchaeus, I'm sure they did a couple of hip checks in the head, like, boom. You're not, no, you're not sitting here. You, you go back there. So he climbs up a tree. He's looking to see Jesus. And here's the beauty of the gospel in effect. Jesus sees him passing by, looks up in the tree, and says to him, Zacchaeus, come down. Because I must go to your house today for dinner. Dude, Jesus came and invited himself to Zacchaeus' house. That's exactly what he did to me. He didn't even ask permission. He just came in and started wrecking my life and rocking my life. I don't know about you. My mama said this one simple thing at the dinner table. It wasn't, I never heard the gospel in my life. I never heard the gospel preached. I never heard a gospel sermon. I never remember hearing a sermon in church. We never went. We were staunch heathen. We had conviction. And so my mom says to me one night, you, you believe in God, don't you? Yeah, I guess so. When I said that, the Holy Spirit came on me like a cloud of electricity. 
I did not know what it was or what to do. I mean, I, I sensed there was something about God in it, but I didn't know what was going on. Went up to my room, walked around for 30 minutes, not knowing what to do. I came back down. I said to my mom, I think I need to get baptized or something. Like something's happening with God in me. So one thing led to another. She knew a friend who knew a pastor, called him over to the house. He led me to Christ, baptized me in the swimming pool. That same night, Jesus came into my house without asking. He rocked me. Not because my mama was an awesome evangelist, but because the gospel is God takes the initiative and he says, I want you. You come to me. And my heart said, yeah, okay, I don't know like, what I'm doing at all. I don't know any scripture. I didn't even own a Bible for a year and a half or go to church for a year and a half after that. I just wandered around and rode my motorcycle out in the woods and cried out to God. That's all I needed to do. And he began to change me from the inside out. So Jesus goes to Zacchaeus' house. You know the Pharisees hated that, right? Here, this guy is like the lowest of the low life. In fact, I was reading in the, in the Mishnah, which is the oral tradition of the, of the Jews, they said, in the Mishnah it says that tax collectors are subhuman and that you don't have to worry about lying to a tax collector because it's not a sin to lie to an animal. The Mishnah says that. This is the view they had of tax collectors. So Jesus goes, invites himself to his house, comes into his house, and what happens? The wee little evil man whose heart was full of this idol of covetousness and greed to where he would sell his grandma. All of a sudden, he starts, he gets giddy. Lord, I'm going to give half of all of my money away. He's like a little kid. And if I've done anybody wrong, I'll pay them back four times as much. And what did Jesus say? This day, salvation has come to this house. Because Jesus came and invaded his grace came without permission and without invitation. He invited himself over and he came in and he rocked the wee little evil man's life and turned him upside down. Now, he wasn't just obeying and now I'm just not going to rob people anymore. There was such an overflow that he's like, I'll pay back four times and I'm going to give half of my money. And he's giddy about it. He's delighting in it. His obedience is enforced. That's not what the gospel does. It comes inside and changes your desire to where you want to do what he wants you to do. That's the gospel. That's the power of God in the gospel. It changes our very desires and our nature at the core. Now, obedience is what Jesus said. I delight to do thy will, O oh. That's Zacchaeus. That's a beautiful picture of the power of the embrace of God. Jesus weathered the expectations, the frowny faces of all the Pharisees, went to his house, rocked his life, and invaded and changed him. There's a power. Hear me. I can tell you from experience in this, this last little bit. I mean, this is kind of unusual for me. I, you know, again, my my personality is not to being prone towards spiritual depression. That's not my temperament. I'm usually up and all of that. 
what we need in those times is the Father's embrace. There was a time recently where I was sitting with my wife and we're praying. And she said, what's going on, baby? <laughs> I started a ball. I, said, I hope this is okay. Like, I know I'm one of the elders here. But let me tell you, there's no heroes. Jesus is the only hero. <laughs> He's the only one that has it all together. We're all needy and we need to draw on his grace every day. So I said to my wife with tears streaming down my face, I said, I just need him to hold my heart. I just need him to hold my heart. I feel so helpless and so broken and so unable to beat my way out of this paper bag. Just cast out the devil, brother. I, I did that. Just quote the scripture. I did that. Just pray. I did that. Just worship. I did, I did that. But sometimes you just got to keep going in the right direction knowing where your answer is and drawing off of the grace of the Lord. This is what healed my heart. The Father comes with his embrace and it changes everything. It changes everything. That's the gospel. The face of God is turned towards us. His attention is on us. His favor has been poured out and lavished upon us. This is a total game changer. Whatever we go through in life, I, I think about this, you know, I, I read a lot of stuff, and um, you, when you read about the martyrs in the, in the Christian church, the, 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 the thing that was so outstanding and so powerful in their witness was when they're going to be thrown to the lions, when they're going to be burned at the stake, they're not groveling and begging. They're rejoicing and singing. Their confidence and their joy and their hope is in God. So beautiful, so powerful, and so many, it had such an effect on the early um, Romans in that day. The martyrs, the joy, and the life. Old man, don't you know if you don't recount, we can burn you, we'll burn you at the stake. His answer, I've served Jesus these 80 some odd years. Why would I deny him now? Bring the fire! We say that in a revival sense. He said that in the real sense. <laughs> Bring the fire! I'm ready because now you're going to give me my heart's desire. There's something powerful about that. It's beautiful. So the face of God, the grace of God gives us the face of God and also the hand of God. John chapter 1, I'm going to look at some verses here. We're, we're moving toward the landing strip. Thank you, guys. Might be a few more minutes. We have to circle the airport. <laughs> but, uh, I want to remind you that Paul, in the very center of his letter to the Philippians, chapter 3 and verse 1, he said, finally, brethren. <laughs> he was exactly halfway done when he said that. So, I believe that was the Holy Ghost, don't you? John chapter 1, verse 14 through 18. Again, familiar, so powerful. The Word became flesh, dwelt among us. We saw His glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of what? Full of what? Full of grace and truth. Jesus is full. How many believe that? What is, how much is full? 
How much is full? Is there enough for you? Is there enough for you? Is there enough for you in your season? Is there enough for you in this situation that you're in? Is there enough for you in your life, in your hard time, in your trial, in your dark season where the darkness just won't seem to lift? I get that for the first time in my life. I've heard people say that. I've read books by that title. What do you do when the darkness won't lift? I'm like, I get it now. I want to tell you what you do. This is what athletes do. When an athlete, you you know, my I wasn't a, a hoopster like Brandon. I played tennis in high school. And so when you, in tennis, the thing that usually messes up them is your serve. You start double faulting. You start can't, can't keep it in the box. And so what do you do when you get into a funk like that? What do you do? What do you do in basketball when you get into a funk and you can't hit a three-pointer or you can't make a foul shot? You, you go back to the foundation. You go back to the basics. This is what I found. For every deal in our life, the gospel is the answer. For every deal in our life, the gospel is the power of God. It's true. The hand of God. So verse 14 again. The Word became flesh, dwelt among us. We saw His glory, glory as the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified about Him and cried out, saying, John was my kind of guy. I like the guys that cry out. This was He of whom I said, He who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for He existed before me. Verse 16. Notice this. For of His, say it, of His fullness we have all received. And what? And grace upon grace. What we've received is out of His fullness. And then it says, and grace upon grace. If you, if you take that phrase literally in the Greek, it says grace instead of grace. And the idea, if you look it up, you know, scholars, the idea is that when one wave of grace passes, there's another one that comes right on top of it. And they just keep piling Wave upon wave of grace. That's the outflow. There's a movement of grace in the heart of Jesus that's towards His people. I want to tell you, it's coming toward you. You just have to get in the place where it's going to wash on top of you. Who's ever been to Bush Gardens? You don't want to admit it. It's not, it's not ungodly, okay? It's okay if you go. <laughs> Bush Gardens, there's a, there's a, what's the name of the... Um, of the roller coaster that comes down and goes through the water. You know what I'm talking about? And there's this big area out there, and they have it roped off, and it says splash zone. If you stand here, you will get soaked. Those are the places that I'm looking for. Jesus, I want to stand in the splash zone where the waves of your grace just keep crashing over me. Just keep washing over me. See, that, that's the answer. It's the gospel, the grace. The Father's already decided, even in my time of trying to work my way out of this season of darkness, the Father, before eternity, before I was even born. <laughs> I always laugh at this. My, my, I was an accident. My parents didn't intend to have me, but Jesus came into the house and said, I don't think so. 
Not yet, no. We're, we're, we're not an accident. Get into the place where His grace can just keep washing over you. Just keep washing over you. Get in that place where there's laying on the floor, where there's just crying and saying, God, here I am. Hold my heart. Wash over me. I need your grace. I need your strength. This is what his grace does. It not only gives his favor to us, but it also gives his strength and his power to us. That's what enables us to do the thing that he's called us and made us to do, right? It's his grace. Here's the classic scripture on that. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 10. Paul says, but I am what I am by the grace of God. And his grace towards me did not prove to be vain. But I labored more diligently than all of the other apostles. What a statement, dude. What a statement. I labored more diligently than all of the other apostles, yet not I, but the grace of God that was in me. We want to have lots of fruitfulness, right, in our lives. Who, who wants to have a lot of fruitfulness for the Lord Jesus in your life? We want to have fruitfulness for the Lord in our life. Let me just use this example in, in closing. His face is toward us. His hand is moving toward us. His grace is always on the move. It's moving. His grace is not static. It didn't just happen when we came through the door at the cross and we received His grace when we received His forgiveness. It's still moving. It's the very thing that animated Paul. Have you looked at his uh, schedule? Like, dude, his, his day timer, his planner was seriously scary. The things that he did every day and the things that he went through. Managed all of the churches among the other things. But constantly being chased down, hunted down, uh, going everywhere, preaching the gospel, working all night to support himself. He not only supported him on his own self in the ministry, and in the, when he went on crusades, he worked at night to support the people that he had to come. You guys come and help me on the crusade, and I'll work and make tents at night, and I'll support you. That's Acts 20. That's what he said. That's the context of it's more blessed to give than receive, by the way. He had a scary itinerary and schedule, and yet he says, it's the grace of God that enabled me to outwork, produce more fruit for the kingdom than all of the other apostles. What a staggering statement. So let me use this example at the end. I hope I, I, hope I can work it without props. I really wanted to have a cart up here and a horse, but uh, couldn't, couldn't get that together. Thought it might, Raul might have a nervous breakdown if he thought it was going to be a horse in here plopping on the carpet. Um, <laughs> so I say that in the church very often, and even in our own personal lives, we get the cart before the horse, right? What does that mean? We have things switched around backwards. So in the church, here's what we do. We have this cart. We want to be fruitful. So we keep piling up the fruit the produce and boxes on the back of that card. We want to get it as full as possible. So we keep stacking, keep stacking, keep stacking the fruit. And most all of our messages are about, dude, you need more fruit. Dude, you need to move your cart faster. Dude, you need to keep stacking. You've got a little space in there. You can put some other little thing in there. That's most of our messages, myself included. Because there is more. And we want to be fruitful and do all the things that Jesus wants us to do. But here's, here's the deal. How 
How do you get that cart moving into market? You've you got to have a good horse. You know, when I was little, watching the old westerns, how many have ever thought this with me? I'm thinking, they hanged people for stealing horses? Like, that seems a little extreme and a little harsh. Okay, um, I mean, I'm not a huge pet lover by any means. I mean, I, w- I would, we've definitely had some epic fails with our dogs. <laughs> I would give you my dog. In fact, I put $2,000 one time in a dog between buying the dog, the training, all of the stuff. We had a special trainer come to the house. She was so difficult to deal with. And then I finally just completely gave her away. I said, we had some friends. She, she about drove me to a nervous breakdown, that dog. She had a third of the normal brain of a flea. It was <laughs> totally hyper, couldn't calm her down, sucked all the air out of every, every, if people came over to the house, you couldn't even have it in there. We literally had to put her in the crate. Mind you, I paid $750 for a trainer to come to the house and help us train her. It's a little Yorkie, this little big, and she dominated my life. Finally, we had some friends that were in between jobs. He'd lost his job. And I said, dude, sell the dog. I'll give you the cage. I'll give you everything the trainer gave us. I'll give you all the paraphernalia. She's already had her shot. She's got the microchip in her. Take the dog and sell it. Get whatever you can for her. But just get her out of my life before I go crazy. <laughs> so I've had some epic fails. We had a, an, another dog. So I won't tell you all of that situation either. But I thought, this is kind of crazy that the penalty for stealing a horse is hanging, death. And so I just started, I just got curious about it. I started reading. I wonder why that was. And reading about the guys that wrote the law, they said, they said this, because a horse is a man's life. If he lives out in the wilderness, his wife's going to have a baby, he's got to get her to the doctor. If his kid's sick and burning up of a fever, he's got to get into the town. He uses that horse to plow his field and to grow crops very often. He uses that field to pull the cart to get it to market to sell his stuff. It's all about his life is wrapped around that horse. I want to I make the analogy and use the picture. That is true for us as believers as well. So I get this picture in church. What we do is we, we focus, most of all the preaching is about filling the cart, being fruitful, putting more stuff in there. We, we love the whole abortion uh, you know, issue, very much a part of my heart. All kinds of issues, though, you can put in there. Everything now becomes an issue. Stack and put in that box, and it gets stacked up big. Here's the question that we don't ask often enough. Dude, how's your horse? Is your horse lame? Can your horse even pull that cart? Because we got the weight of all of these things that we do as Christians and all of the things that we should do to produce fruitfulness. But the question is, what is the horse that's going to pull that cart and get it to market for you? And I want to say that that horse is grace. We substitute other things in place of that, and they're all lame. I see that a lot of times what we do is we, we stack up people's carts and then Sunday morning we bring them here and have them hook up a lame horse to it. Come on, faster, move it, move it, move it, move it, move it. Come on, there's more you can get out. We got And Jesus said, the only horse that can pull that load is the outflow of my own fullness. 
flowing into you. There's power and strength in that. that. There's power in that embrace to transform and to give hope. And there's strength from his mighty hand flowing out of that grace to pull that load. Otherwise, it gets really discouraging when you're trying to pull that load with a lame horse. And you get out there and you can only do this for so long. <laughs> Can't push it. We use lame horses all the time. One of them is our own willpower. Here's the name of the lame horse. Try harder. Try harder. That horse is lame. Bro, you need to put that horse down. Here's what willpower does for us. Here's a great illustration in the Gospels. The disciples love Jesus. They're all about Jesus. They thought they were laying their lives down for him every day, and in some ways they were. Jesus says, going to Jerusalem, I'm going to die there. They're going to kill the Son of Man. And on the third day, he's going to rise again. Peter stands up, being the mouth of the body. <laughs> no, Lord, I'll go there and die with you. I will never let them take you without me being taken down too. And the Bible says, and they all said the same thing. What happened when it came push to shove in the garden? of Gethsemane. Judas comes up, betrays him with a kiss. The soldiers pull up. Peter, he chops the ear off first, but then he runs. And the rest of them, they all ran and hid themselves. That's the, what's your willpower to? That's what your own natural devotion to Jesus can do. It's not enough. I want to tell you that horse is lame. You need to shoot it and put it down and get another horse. The horse that pulls the load is the one that Zacchaeus found. He, he didn't, Jesus didn't command him, dude, there's an idol in your heart. You need to get it out. That's covetousness. God hates that. There was nothing, that, as far as we know, in that encounter like that. There was just the presence of Jesus coming and rocking the whole inside of him with his love. And then he was giddy like a little kid on Christmas about giving away his stuff. Like, that's a radical. That's the gospel of Jesus. It can alone pull the load that is the Christian life and is the Christian obligation and are all the things that we know are close to the heart of Jesus. Only the grace of God can pull that load. So we try to substitute try harder. We try to substitute guilt, obligation, why are you doing that, brother? Well, everybody else is doing it. I just, I feel like I just need to do it. I feel awkward and embarrassed if somebody asks me, how much did you pray this week? That horse won't pull your cart. I'll tell you another horse that's lame is the approval of men. I'm going to do this so that the elders can see and go, oh, man, you guys are awesome. You're so devoted and dedicated. We love you and appreciate you. But that horse won't pull that load. Not for long. Here's, here's an amazing thing to me. I've been meditating in John chapter 5. I know I'm doing a little prophetic rambling since Jeremiah's not here. Um, <laughs> chapter 5 of John, Jesus is talking about his sonship with the Father. And one of the things that he emphasizes in that chapter about his sonship is, he says in verse 41 of John 5, 
I don't receive glory from men. Like, I, I don't receive it. I don't, I don't want it. Why, 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 Jesus, why didn't you receive glory from men? Well, first he knew it's not reliable. One day they'll say Hosanna, the next day they'll say crucify. And secondly, it doesn't matter. For the son to the father, the only for approval that he's seeking or she's seeking as a daughter is the father's approval. You're doing what I want you to do. And honestly, he's already made up his mind what he thinks about you. If we're going after the approval of men, how many have ever struggled with this? Come on, lift your hand if you have. Yes. We want people to respect us. We want people to think that we're awesome. We want people to honor us. That's in the human nature. But I want to tell you, sonship with the Father and the Father's embrace can cure you of that and pull that thorn out of your soul to where that doesn't, isn't a thing that motivates you. You'll find out after a while. You talk about burnout. Burnout comes from using these lame horses. It comes from using lame horses. The horse of the grace of Jesus Christ flowing out of his fullness into your life. That horse will never wear out. That horse will never wear out. That's the horse you need to get. The grace of God is amazing. It is powerful. It is his face towards you. It is his hand moving in you. I like this quote by Andrew Murray. He says, a dead Christ I must do everything for, but a living Christ does everything through me. A dead Christ I must do everything for. Get down there and push that car. Come on. Be more dedicated. Here's lots of revival service. Be more passionate. Be more prayerful. Be more dedicated. Be more committed. Come on. Be more generous. Be more giving, whatever. Shoot that horse. Take the horse of the Father's embrace for you and of his empowerment of you. See, great grace isn't ever a license for not doing anything. That's completely false. Grace is empowerment, and la- people that are spiritually lazy, that demonstrates they don't have grace operating in their life. For real. Come on, that, that didn't preach well. That, that's for real. Here's the deal. If we want to move the cart down the road, if you want to carry more stuff in your car, if you want to be more fruitful, there's one way to fruitfulness. It's out of his fullness that it flows into you. You got to get in that place. How many are spiritually dissatisfied in your life? You look in the mirror and you go, that stinks. I don't mean beating up yourself in that kind of a self-fixation. I like what Robert Murray McShane said, and he's, he's an old dead friend, too. He, he said, for every one look at self, take ten looks at Christ. Because he's your answer. Don't ask yourself, how, you, how am I feeling this morning? You tell yourself. Like Martin Lloyd-Jones said, we listen to ourselves too much and talk to ourselves too little. So here's my heart for us. As a church that aspires for revival and for God to move and for fruitfulness and for all of these things that are good and godly, Let's hook up to the right horse. Let's get ourselves in the splash zone, in the place where His grace can wash over us. If we don't have a sense 
of the Father's embrace and His nearness in our life. You need to get that. You need to get in the place where, wherever that means. Get in that place and let, him, let, his, let His waves wash over you. Let His waves wash over you and encourage you, strengthen you, and turn your eyes to the one who can help you. Bow your heads with me. Lord, we love you. Jesus, we love you. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for the blood that you shed. Thank you for the mighty outpouring, the fullness, the overflowing of your grace that you have poured upon us as your people. Lord, I thank you that your grace is enough. Your embrace is enough. You've turned your face towards us. You've turned your hand towards us to move and empower and enable us to do everything that you wanted us to do. Help us to live in that light, in the light of Christ. Thank you for this people. I'm just going to open up the altar if you want to come down. If you feel like you need to get in that splash zone, if you feel like you're languishing a little bit, I know there's, we hate to admit that we're struggling because it feels like defeat or we're acknowledging defeat. That's not true. We're just acknowledging our need for God, which is every second of our life. If you haven't felt the kiss of the Father upon your spirit in a while, just come down here and just spend time with Him. If you need to put down some lame horses and take up the right horse in your life, you're welcome to come down here and do that.